This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. Good afternoon, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's event, which is part of the Environmental Resilience Lecture Series, co-organised by ourselves at the IIEA and the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. And on behalf of the IIEA, I'd like to thank the EPA for their sponsorship and collaboration on uh, this initiative. Over the last 12 months, um, the lecture series has explored a diverse range of topics, such as the circular economy, environmental governance, uh, the bioeconomy, water quality, climate finance, and today, zero waste design. We're really honored to be joined uh, this afternoon by Claire Mifflin, who's development lead of the Zero Waste Design Guidelines for New York City, and the founder of the Center for Zero Waste Design. In her address in a few moments, Claire will outline how waste is in fact a design flaw um, and argue that sustainable, prosperous and livable cities of the future will need to uh, become zero waste. Um, the title of Claire's address is just that, Designing for Zero Waste Strategies for New York City. And I know that we'll uh, gain from the perspective of Irish cities, we'll uh, look forward to gaining a huge amount of insight uh, from, from Claire's talk. Claire Mifflin is an architect, uh, a systems thinker with over 20 years of experience designing buildings to the highest environmental standards. She is certified as a biomimicry professional, architect, passive house designer, and uh, uh, lead professional. That's LWED, as well as LEAD, I'm sure, but <laughs> we, know, we, know, we know what we're, we're, we're talking about. Um, Ms. Mifflin led the development of the Zero Waste Design Guidelines for New York City through a multidisciplinary collaborative process. These guidelines serve as a resource and an inspiration for architects and developers to help cities reach their zero waste goal. And they're being disseminated and implemented through the uh, Center for Zero Waste Design. Since 2017, uh, Claire Miffin has served as co-chair of the American Institute of Architecture, New York Committee on the Environment. She's gonna to speak to us today for about 20 minutes or so. And after the presentation, we're going to go to you uh, for the live Q&A. You, our audience, uh, an important, most important part of the presentation this afternoon. You're going to be able to join the discussion uh, using the Q&A function on Zoom, with uh, which you're well familiar at this stage, and you'll see it there on your screen. As we always say at this stage, feel free to pop in your question uh, when it occurs to you throughout the session, uh, rather than waiting until the end, because there's always the risk of getting all the questions together and not being able to cope with them as we get up to the last ten, five or 10 minutes. So if it occurs to you, that big insight or question, just pop it on the Q&A and we'll try to get to it. Um, if you wouldn't mind identifying yourself, um, any give your name and any affiliation that you may have uh, when uh, asking the question. Both the presentation and the Q&A uh, today are on the record. Uh, so, um, so just to bear that in mind. And if you're uh, minded to do, to do so, feel free to join the discussion on Twitter. And in that context, you can use hashtag EPA underscore IIEA. That's hashtag EPA underscore IIEA. But before we come to the uh, presentation, it's um, my uh, honor to hand over to Sharon Finnegan. Um, Sharon Finnegan, uh, as you know, is Director of Environmental Sustainability at the Environment Protection Agency. And Sharon, uh, thank you for joining us. I know you're just going to get the ball rolling with some introductory remarks. The floor is yours. Many thanks, Alex, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you for this IEA lecture. I suppose the EPA is really thrilled to partner with the IEA and this lecture series, and I'm really looking forward to hearing this afternoon from Claire about her experiences in New York. And what I wanted to do maybe was before you settle in to listen to Claire's story and the progress made in New York, I just wanted you to invite you to think about the current situation with regard to generation of waste in Ireland and how we dispose and handle of waste here in this country. So just some, some interesting statistics to begin with. 
In Ireland, over 13 million tonnes of waste are generated per year in our homes and our workplaces and throughout our uh, using our leisure activities. The EPA's latest national waste statistics indicate that waste generation is increasing in many waste streams, including household and commercial waste, construction and demolition waste, hazardous waste, waste electrical and electronic equipment and end of life vehicles. Ireland is now generating more than 1 million tonnes of packaging each year, and the recycling rate of packaging is decreasing as more goes for energy recovery. Single-use items like plastic cups and single-use tissue paper are an increasing feature in our household and commercial curbside bins. Landfill and waste to energy recovery in Ireland is at capacity, and the country is highly dependent on export markets to residual, recyclable and hazardous waste. And so we can draw a number of conclusions from these facts that I've just outlined. Number one, our current model of consumption is built on convenience through short-lived or single-use products and disposable packaging is not sustainable and that is something we need to change. The link between economic growth and consumption levels and waste generation has not been broken. And we have also reached a plateau in relation to waste management. So before you kind of despair about all of that, I will say that the zero waste movement and the circular economy have a critical role to play in countering these trends and supporting the achievement of climate targets at national and global levels. The EPA has been working in the area of waste prevention through the National Waste Prevention Programme for many years. Our existing work in this area includes Ireland's well-regarded food waste prevention campaign, the Smart Farming Initiative, and development of national guidance on priority topics like construction waste management and green public procurement. The EPA also supports Circulera, which is an innovative and networking platform, which was established last year with 26 leading manufacturers to bring circularity into Ireland's world-class manufacturing sector. The latest national waste policy document, a waste action plan for a circular economy, which was published in September 2020, seeks to shift the focus away from waste disposal and treatment to ensure that materials and products remain in productive use for longer. Such an approach prevents waste and supports reuse through a policy framework that discourages resources and being wasted and rewards circularity. It also draws attention to the role of design and waste prevention through the delivery of products that are more amenable to recycling or reuse. We are now developing a new national circular economy programme, which will incorporate the National Waste Prevention Programme to be the driving force for Ireland's move to a circular economy by businesses, householders and the public sector. This programme will be launched in the coming weeks and will support the wider government circular economy strategy and translate national circular ambitions into life. Claire, our speaker today, is therefore coming to us at a very significant time in Ireland's waste management policy timeline. And I'm really looking forward to hearing today of the experience, her experience of addressing similar challenges and opportunities in New York and learning how these can be overcome. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over the floor to Claire in a bright, uh, sunny New York City this morning. Over to you, Claire. Thank you so much, Sharon. That was a great introduction and so in line with um, our thinking here at the Centre for Zero Waste Design. I am going to start by sharing my screen here. And just letting people know that the zero waste design guidelines were really um, developed to answer the question, what can architects and urban designers do to help cities reach zero waste? They were, made, they were developed in New York City, but the best practice strategies within them are adaptable for cities um, globally. And it's really because architects aim to design beautiful objects, buildings but they don't often consider the ugly system impacts from making and using the building, such as consuming resources and generating waste. Similarly, city governments don't often count the full system impacts, such as the emissions generated during the production of things consumed in a city. And for a consumption-based city like New York City, that can actually double or triple our greenhouse gas emissions. These I've kind of highlighted in red here are ones that when we design a city for zero waste in the circular economy, we need to think about. And so how can we use design to change the system? Um, we can be inspired by the mushroom, which works with other decomposers to turn waste into soil for renewal and regrowth. Um, 
So as I said, I'm a biomimicry professional. So I love to look at natural systems and see how they can inspire us. And when I look at mature ecosystems that regenerate all their um, resources, there's three characteristics that really develop. And those are feedback loops, niche specialization and collaboration. And looking at how we can um, design cities to encourage those characteristics will help us to get circular. So looking into the zero waste design guidelines, these are downloadable from zerowastedesign.org. And I'm just gonna give you a little brief overview. Um, so the strategies for building design, look at how we can plan for the movement of waste through the building, how we can separate waste um, better, how we can reduce the amount of consumption through reuse and how we can reduce the volume of waste um, to reduce the impact on public space. Um, one of the first things is estimating how much waste your building will um, produce and what things you can do to reduce that. For an existing building, you could do an audit, but for a new building, there were no tools for architects. So we developed an online waste calculator tool so that buildings could be designed with adequate, adequate space. And the planning is really straightforward, but it's amazing how seldom architects think it through fully. And um, it really is, if you don't design for the things to stay separated and to be moved and have room to be stored, then even if you separate your recycling at the bin, it's not gonna stay separated until it's collected. Um, so it requires clear visual cues consistent throughout the building. And a really great case study for these examples is Etsy headquarters in, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, they have no bins at the desks, only central waste stations shown here in red. And here you see one. Trash is actually this little hole on the left because they actually accept pretty much most of the materials that are allowed in the facility. And they display right here, here's our feedback loop. This is the diversion rate they achieved last week. And the reason they know that it's because the housekeeping staff, when they put the bag in the hamper, there's a scale in it and a tablet, and they just tap um, metal, plastic glass. And then you know um, that that's what it is, and the software um, determines the, the diversion rate. And they have, um, they also reduce the waste through the use of reusable dishware, unpackaged snacks. They have coffee and kombucha on tap. They, even if you want to go out and get a coffee, you can take a ceramic mug with a lid and they've arranged discounts at local cafes. They host clothing swaps and even employee engagement waste audits to see how well they're doing. So they really took it the whole way with design and they are um, certified through zero waste facility. And it ties into them, their mission. And those are part of the reducing material consumption strategies. And here in New York City, floor area is so expensive that in this building, in the Hearst Tower, this conveyor takes reusable dishes down three stories to the cellar to be washed because the floor area is much cheaper there. So it's just an example of how you need to design buildings for this at the beginning. Um, there's also many strategies to reduce the volume of waste, whether that's a cardboard baler or equipment that can squeeze out the water of food waste and start to, to process it. Um, we have infographics like this that bring all the best practice strategies together for a certain type of building. So your architect's designing a restaurant, they look at this infographic and they can see all the best practice strategies that they can implement for a space like that. And also we have circular building materials. And one of the most important things here is just to build less. We need to build fewer buildings. We need to repurpose existing buildings. And if we do design a new building, we have to make sure that it can be designed for flexibility. This shows different layouts and use of the space so that we build less and use less materials. And then there are a lot of other strategies like making sure the building can be disassembled to be refurbished. We've disseminated the guidelines through exhibitions, education events, referencing them in standards like LEED, adapting them to other cities, and have started a nonprofit Center for Zero Waste Design to continue the work.
One of our first projects the center has worked on is actually the Oceanic Floating City, um, which is a design for a new city, which aims to have a positive impact on its surroundings, being zero energy, um, harvesting its own water, growing its food, and treating its own waste as much as it can. So we did the zero waste and circular economy strategy. And um, one of the first things is looking at how we can reduce the amount of consumption to start with and what we have to have within the city. So we actually have collection systems for reusables, recyclings and things that have to be returned um, to the mainland, laundry and food waste here. And bulk goods would come from the mainland. Some food's grown there, but bulk goods coming from the mainland and locally grown food are all packaged in reusable containers. Food waste would be weighed before disposal leading restaurants to order more accurately and can reduce waste by over 35%. And then instead of being stored and carted in bins where it could produce odors and attract vermin, it's moved with a small pneumatic tube directly to a small anaerobic digester, which creates heat and power. And the power goes into the electricity grid and the heat warms the water to wash the reusable packaging and dishware. Food waste from homes, landscaping and farming goes to the compost gardens to make soil and grow food in the community gardens. Floating cities have no need for garbage trucks. Bulky or fragile items can be transported by cargo bike and anything else, spent batteries, worn clothes or broken toys, get put in a reusable, reusable bag with an ID tag to identify the material and source and they're conveyed to the sorting center by pneumatic tube. Here, residual materials are metered, like water or electricity, and sorted to facilitate repair, reuse, or refabrication. With data, over time, strategies can be tweaked to reduce waste further and applied as evidence-based solutions to other cities. Floating cities will welcome circular economy businesses and help develop community collectives for fixing and repair. Libraries won't just be for books, but anything from a drill to a guitar. Consumer goods, such as a computer or a child's high chair, will be leased rather than owned and returned to the store when maintenance or an upgrade is needed. Goods, furniture and buildings will all be designed for disassembly, so at the end of life, they can be repurposed into something new. So this was really um, a way of, of creating from scratch an ideal circular scenario. The city is actually, we're, get, we're just about to start um, a prototype um, of one module in Busan, South Korea, which I'm really excited about. But looking at the flows in the city, you see that it's a lot of circular flows of reusable packaging, um, food, um, food to be composted. And some of these circular flows are at the scale of one individual module. Some are at the city scale and some things have to be returned to the mainland. So how do we take a city that's designed for circularity like this one and apply it to a city like New York City, which was designed for linear flows? Um, one thing we, we notice if we look at the zoning of New York City is that Manufacturing, shown here in purple, is all on the outskirts for shipping access and to reduce the impacts to residential areas. Um, but people do live near those polluting industries and suffer from the truck traffic and industrial pollution. And other people suffer from being alongside landfills. New York's waste actually goes to landfills as far away as Virginia. Um, so there's serious environmental justice issues from the way we deal with our waste currently. And this has led to our advocacy campaign, Put Waste to Work for Vibrant Streetscapes, Green Jobs and Healthy Neighborhoods. We have a new mayoral administration coming into the city next year, and we're trying to convince them that we need to change the way that waste is managed and, and produced in New York City. So the first strategies we're sharing are those for circulating. Strategies that will help facilitate reuse, repair, refabrication, and composting. And these don't fall into current zoning categories. A community compost facility is very different from a waste transfer station. So these um, rezonings, Boston has rezoned for urban agriculture, and the US Composting Council has given um, suggestions for how cities can 
zone for composting. And so we will need to look at that in the city. And we can also design new buildings to provide facilities for material movement. This one was in Paris and is a, a, a case study in the guidelines. Um, it was used for bulk furniture, but could also be providing facilities for fixing, loaning, and things like that. Like participatory city did in London with empty storefronts where people could drop in and suggest ideas, many of which were about reuse, recycling, and making or could be a tool library, for example. There's a load of empty storefronts in New York City at the moment. We also have to redesign waste bins. So many are so badly designed with mismatch signs and visual cues, and they lead to people being really confused about how to separate waste and lead to a lot of contamination. But even with a well-designed waste station, the current system is really difficult. For example, say this is a food hall, these are the items you have, what goes where? It is so complicated, you have to decide is that plastic or is it compostable plastic? Um, you have to separate the sleeve, the cup and the lid of your reusable, I mean of your disposable coffee cup. And say this is a food hall which stipulates or a college campus which says, no, everything has to be compostable. Um, the separation is a little easier then, but it's expensive for the vendors and only industrial compost facilities can process most compostables. Um, and so many municipal programs don't take them. So it's still single use disposable. So say instead you control for reusables like San Francisco airport's new terminal is gonna try and do this and only have reusables. Um, and in that case, it's really easy to separate everything. All you've got is the reusable items or the food waste. And this great report by Upstream Reuse Wins really um, calculates all the environmental benefits and the benefits for businesses in terms of saving money. But you have to design your facility um, to enable it. And the um, impacts um, benefits to our public space are huge because we're just drowning in, in single-use disposables. But we need to figure out how to design return systems into bins and streets so they're as convenient as throwing away trash, but we're not quite there yet. The next section is all about containing waste because in New York City, we still use bags and there just aren't room for them as the city gets denser especially in neighborhoods like this in the financial district, where there are narrow streets with tall buildings, narrow sidewalks, and the truck may take half an hour to lift this and block traffic as it does. And bag systems are bad for public space and the workers that are hauling them. And as we are looking at reimagining streets for COVID with outdoor dining, it makes it even worse. Shared collection is the solution for many neighborhoods, whether those shared bins are in the street and above ground or submerged within the sidewalk. And after we re recommended them in the guidelines, the departments of sanitation and transportation have started this clean curbs pilot program for shared um, collection within the street. But they really need to ramp it up and do something citywide like they did in Paris where they piloted these recycling bins in the street. Because in Paris, they collect trash and food scraps from buildings and they've moved recycling into the street. Um, they've always had bottle banks and it really makes some sense for them to do that. But they piloted these ones shown in the middle, 40 of them, and then they um, procured a thousand of these stations, which you now see throughout the city. Um, because New York City building codes really prioritize trash. Um, so the code was updated, so now you have to have recycling alongside your trash chute. But if we're going to collect organics everywhere, that, that requires an awful lot of work for people in the building to bring it down um, into the basement and then to put it in bags on the street. Um, so it would be much more convenient if we did what South Korea did and it shut down all the... It stopped allowing trash chutes and new buildings and encouraged existing ones to shut them down. So instead, they have large central waste rooms, which allows for many waste streams 
and gives oversight um, for volume-based charging, like a pay-as-you-throw system. And it's kind of the same on a neighborhood scale. We don't want to have seven bins outside every house. We need to consolidate the drop-offs for multiple streams in central locations. And lastly, um, we tackle compost and regeneration of soils. How can you make sure all city soils are regenerated with compost and consider it part of maintaining green spaces? The New York City Compost Project, um, as it is now, um, takes drop-offs from farmers markets and, and drop-off points. Um, it, it mixes it with leaves and landscape waste from, from city green spaces. And there are these five composting sites and the compost is used for street trees and urban farms and given back to community groups. Um, the benefits are huge, um, but it's only a small fraction, one or 2% of the organic waste in the city. And even though many are in parks, they typically don't compost that park's waste and don't have that compost used within the park. So um, the parks department actually didn't renew many of the leases for the community compost facilities, thinking that composting doesn't belong in parks. But I think it should be considered part of maintaining the park and adding to its resilience as compost can hold six times its weight in water. And we have a lot of flooding events here in New York City. So really, we need to consider circular biocycles at multiple scales. We're not going to compost all of the organic waste in New York City, but we could regenerate all of the soils. And then how can we take other organic waste back into the region to nourish agricultural soils and stop the use of fossil fuel-based fertilizer, which is often from liquid natural gas and just recently has in increased multiple times in price. So it makes sense financially too. Um, because we need different options from the, the current brown bin system the city has, which was partially suspended in COVID, but it's handheld brown bins. So it makes sense for smaller, less dense neighborhoods, but a large building would have to have, you know, 37 of these little bins set out. Um, and that just doesn't make sense. So this project we're looking at here in the Bronx, which has 700 affordable housing units and a food incubator to to help um, start up food businesses, we actually have um, designed for them an in-vessel composter that would be run by the horticultural staff to maintain the soils on the site. But then we now have this um, biodigester, um, which I think the, company's, the company is out of Ireland, Harp actually, which adds microbes and dehydrates the, the food waste. And so it can be used as a fertilizer and could be returned to the regional farm system. Um, Domino Park here on the waterfront in Brooklyn is a, another example, a successful example of this in practice. Um, horticultural staff manage it and they use it to maintain um, the park's green spaces. They take food waste from the community and combine it with their leaves and, and yard waste. Because what do we want our cities to be like? This is actually a block away from where I live. These mini storage buildings, unoccupied buildings full of unused things, drowning in trash and litter. Or do we want circular cities with low impact transportation and reimagined streets, green roofs, healthy street trees? It's up to us to design the city we want. Um, because this is the last slide of, uh, of our um, Put Waste to Work campaign, the benefits um, are huge and over a large variety of New York City's goals, whether that's zero waste, our greenhouse gas reductions, um, vision zero, stopping um, about treat the street safety, healthy neighborhoods, air quality. Repair creates over 200 times as many jobs as landfills and remanufacturing, almost 30 times as many jobs. So this is what we have to do. And I'm going to leave it here um, from my presentation today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, fascinating, really fascinating. Um, 
I, I like the, the, the line at the end, this is what we have to do. And uh, one can only agree, but I suppose uh, being realistic, we, we also have to understand, and I'm sure you do, and the New York situation, you know, what are all the obstacles along the way that, that policymakers and planners and everybody needs to start addressing in order to, we get, to, the, to get to that incredibly visionary set of uh, ideas that you've just been telling us about. Um, so there's so much that maybe we could we could explore and even issues of scale. And I love this idea that, you know, build less. So a few things come out of what you say, just build less, build fewer buildings. I mean, Dublin at the moment, like in common with many other cities, I think there's, there's, I mean, there's a huge amount of commercial property construction happening in Dublin at the moment, even in the teeth of the pandemic. So there's obviously finance has decided or, you know, there's 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 a priority there that we're going to need more commercial properties. But other commentators are saying that in time, perhaps perhaps quite soon, many of those buildings will may have to transition to and it wouldn't be a bad thing to residential. So existing commercial properties may, may, may transition to residential in the post-pandemic world, which we hope it'll be post at some point. Um, and perhaps then maybe we'll need fewer new commercial buildings. So I'm just wondering even just about that transition between you know, commercial buildings to buildings that could in the future be used as residential. Does that, how does that feature in your, in, in, in your thinking in terms of this overall idea, this overall project? Um, I mean, that is not in the put waste to work advocacy, but it's definitely in the zero waste design guidelines because it's really looking at um, designing for flexibility in terms of future use. So it's probably easier normally to go from commercial to residential, but residential buildings generally have lower floor to floor heights. So increasing them means you could go from residential to commercial if that's the way something needs to go. This is something that Paris has thought about a lot, this reversible building design they talk about, making sure that our buildings can be used in different ways in the future. And even, mm -hmm. even now, actually there's one example that the School Construction Authority in New York now doesn't have new schools build auditoriums because those are not used very often. Instead they have gymatoriums, which is like a gym that, and then they have these bleachers that can come in and use the space as an auditorium. Or else you could have an auditorium, but have it near the entrance so local um, theater groups could use it in the evening. Just making sure every space you design is used a lot. And yeah, that's something I've thought about a lot because you hear all these statistics, the world's gonna have double the built area by 2050. And you think, why? We're not gonna have double the population. So, so why just build less? Interesting. And I'm wondering then how, when you reflect, cause you've spoken a lot about design and that's, that's really where this comes back to, as you said, waste is a design flaw. What level of thinking, and you have touched on it, that we need in the planning system. And you showed some slides there in respect of New York and where the industry is and where you know where residential is and where other components of the of the built environment uh, are um, how how do you start to fit all of these ideas into the planning code how do you how do you do that i mean is it do we need to change the planning codes that's happening in some areas do the planners have to be brought on board in a very significant way here um, yes, definitely. I mean, designing for circular material loops, uh, you kind of have to involve so many agencies, which is why we're really pushing in New York City for it not to be something that just falls on the Department of Sanitation, but comes from the mayor's office who can coordinate between city planning, DOT. And yeah, zoning is one thing. Um, and those two small examples I showed, like Boston has um, done this rezoning to promote urban agriculture. We can do the same to promote composting because, yes, you don't want a large compost facility that's smelly right by your residences, but you can do small integrated compost facilities into parks that are nothing like a waste transfer station. And we don't really have um, a zoning category for them. Um, so moving our zoning categories into the modern day, we still have things like tanneries and waste reduction, you know, these kind of things that nobody's doing in the city anymore um, mm. in the zoning code. And it really has to be modernized. Um, and then you can do things to promote 
facilities. Like we just had a grant looking at Hong Kong and Singapore and other high density cities. We're just actually about to release uh, our report on that in the next few days. Um, but they subsidize eco-industrial facilities, say an eco park where food waste is turned into animal feed, but it's like a, it's subsidized space for that kind of thing. Cause those kind of facilities often don't make enough money to pay commercial rates in the city of New York. So finding um, subsidizing space for circularity within the city is also important. And what kind of responses or attitudes do you get from, we'll say, city planners in, in New York to these to these ideas and this kind of vision? I mean, is there is there a receptiveness and openness to these ideas there? Um, out of, out of definitely. Yeah, um, definitely. Actually, I just presented the advocacy campaign to city planning and 15 of them signed on to talk about it. Um, in a way, I'm kind of glad we have bags on the sidewalk in New York City because we can't ignore the problem. And it's in your face and the rats are getting worse and council members are more up in arms that we've got to do something about it. So, yes, I think city planning is definitely a great way in um, for New York City. And also, it just occurs to me, also in in respect of the, the you, you know your presentation that, and, and this is not to take from it. On the contrary, I think it's it, it's it shows um, you know the, the great value of it. That I think what you're talking about, it seems to me anyway to be the gold standard of what could be achieved, if I can put it that way. And I don't want that to be taken as a, as a it's certainly not a criticism, but it's you know it's in a sense it's 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 a vision to be attained. Um, it's how things could best be done. So how, how does that fit with public opinion, where people are in their lives, where, you know, what people's possibilities are, their income, their, their level of perhaps education about what's possible to change? You know, I mean, that's a huge question, I know, but it's, it's don't, don't we have to meet people where they are and people have different levels of income, different levels of appreciation of the problem. Getting it into the public discourse or getting it into the whole political uh, frame, and you've got a new mayor coming on board and so on. So how does it play at that level, I wonder, in New York? Um, I mean, I think it's make, if it's designed right, it's not more difficult for your average person. At the moment, the system is not great for, for anybody. The walking past the trash, having the rats, having the litter. Um, as I showed that confusing separation of recyclable materials is difficult, it's confusing, it's hard to do well. I kind of like to look at, at Passive House, which I know is a movement that's, that's really jumped in New York City. Many of the new affordable houses are Passive House. And I know it's a big movement in Ireland too, to design buildings for Passive House. Like in the green building movement, we used to get we used to add more complexity. We'd add radiant floors, multiple systems, all these complexities, and it would like raise the cost and raise the cost. But then when you got to passive house level of insulation, suddenly you really didn't need your expensive, fancy heating system. You could just have a really simple system. Um, and we kind of need to do the same with waste. Like we're adding more and more confusing compostable materials different multiple multiple streams to separate into. And if we just went to reusables, it would be so much simpler and lower cost for everybody. So that's what I'm kind of trying to convince people. And I think the way to convince people is definitely through pilots and you have um, controlled spaces like a university campus or, or schools where you pilot these reusable models and you can see how simple it is. And then people get convinced. And I also think community composting is a great way to convince people because it's so tangible. You can see the food waste going to make soil to grow more food. Um, it's so much easier for people to understand than reducing your energy, for example. On that point, or closely linked to it, Nora Owen um, asks uh, whether she's wondering like what incentives uh, stroke sanctions are in place to encourage citizens and what, what costs are involved, you know, for citizens as a general proposition. And she asks as a kind of a subsidiary question, do people dump hazardous waste hidden in normal rubbish? Uh, is that a, is that a, a, a risk or is that a phenomenon that you come, that features? 
Um, I mean, there aren't a lot of incentives or penalties for, for doing the wrong thing with waste. And that's what I was trying to get to with feedback loops. I mean, New York City has said it wants to look at introducing a pay or save as you throw program where um, like in South Korea, and I, I believe in Dublin as well, you pay more for, for trash than recycling or food waste. And when you do do a system like that, there are always worries that yes, you might hide the wrong thing to have lower cost. Um, but that's why I was pushing the idea that if you don't throw away your waste in lots of little hidden spots, but it's more central, then there's, there's possibility for more oversight of this kind of thing. And actually, I was looking at a report the other day in, in South Korea about hazardous medical waste and whether people were, um, were disposing of it illegally. And they were talking a lot about as well, the increase in data um, tracking for their waste has made it much easier to, to find those things. But I think those things are always a worry, but generally they're not half as bad as people fear. Sure. Paul Leach um, says floating cities have many attractions, and he points to the Maldives. Uh, he says intellectually they are elegant uh, as defining a useful uh, putative system boundary, but there's the risk of storm and tsunamis, and they can significantly or severely uh, damage them or destroy them, at least pose a huge risk. Um, so he, 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 that, 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 that's a statement, but it's poses a question. I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, yes, definitely. That's an issue. I mean, this idea of the floating city from Oceanic City is one that is very close to shore. I think um, even it could be within, say, a, a harbour in a protected space. So the tsunami would not be a big deal. They were, they were definitely considering that when they were looking for locations to put the floating city to have it in a, in a sheltered location. Um, but yes. Stephen Frain, who's a researcher at the IEA, asks, how can a move towards zero waste in developing countries um, happen? How can that be brought about um, that might, uh, might prioritize industrial expansion over the environment? Um, if I understand that question right, it might perhaps might be suggesting the other way around, promote the environment. Um, but Anyway, how to balance the two things, expansion, industrial expansion, and the, and the necessity to, to, to maintain the environment. Um, and I think in developing countries like there is with energy and other systems, there's the opportunity to, to leapfrog and not go through the, the stage that we have in the developed world of these systems full of recycling and single-use disposables, um, because if you don't have that, it's much easier to go straight to, to reusable systems. And I would say that's what needs to be done in developing countries. And in developing countries, you often have a really strong informal waste sector. You have a lot of labor sorting through things. This was big even in Singapore, the informal um, Karangong men were collecting 20 times as much as the, the actual municipal recycling mm -hmm. system. So, so making sure that you work with those informal waste sectors as well can make a big difference. Actually, interestingly, Warren Phelan uh, works for the Regional Waste Management uh, Office at the National Waste Plan Project, says, come back to, again to the residential waste, says that in Ireland, our collection of waste um, at apartments and multi-storey dwellings is not performing well for a number of reasons, such as lack of space, lack of incentives for residents, poor management companies, et cetera. From your experience and your knowledge, what are the key system changes to implement uh, that would improve the performance of waste management at these kinds of locations? Yeah, that's the case in, in, in the Americas too, in Toronto and places, you know, they do pretty well in the single family homes, but the multifamilies are more difficult. Um, and actually Toronto is a, an interesting example because they have, um, they have anaerobic digestion for organic waste and they accept almost everything, even diapers, because um, they can separate out the plastic. Converted their trash chute to uh, organics chute and they've actually um, decreased their trash like tenfold um, by making throwing organic waste more convenient than trash. But 
that's kind of a little bit of a special case and only works for um, buildings that have really invested residents like a cooperative. And what I've seen more frequently is this idea of what they did in South Korea, where they shut down the chutes and the refuse rooms on every floor and have a central waste location. In, in South Korea, it's actually often outside and it's often manned. So there's someone there telling you what if you're doing something wrong. And I think in multifamilies, that is really the answer to, yeah. to centralize it where, wherever you can or to develop other ways for giving feedback and making sure people are doing the right thing. Um, the Irish plan uh, commits to halving food waste by 2030. Do you think um, that level of target is feasible? Um, and, you know, by extension, uh, what, what progress has, has New York made in reaching its, its own food waste targets? So just to concentrate on food waste. Um, I mean, food waste is hugely important. It has the biggest greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think it's definitely feasible. I mean, New York City doesn't have, that I know, a separate food waste reduction target goal. But, um, well, maybe it does. Not that I'm aware of. Um, but reducing food waste can be done hugely at an individual building level. So why couldn't it be done at a city level? We've seen many buildings um, manage to reduce their food waste by, by 50% um, by tracking it primarily. If you track it, you know what you're wasting and you can reduce that. And then at a city level, there are all these little businesses that have popped up, which is my example of collaborative relationships where there's one where you can just volunteer a few hours a week rescuing leftover cuisine and you take food from, say, a corporate lunch that didn't happen down to your lo local church. And, and individuals are doing that moving of the food or the too good to go boxes that you can buy surplus food at the end of day. Um, I think it's definitely the amount of food waste is staggering. Um, you can definitely develop more and more systems to reduce that. Actually, New York State has just done a law that is similar to Paris, that grocery stores now have to have um, a relationship to donate food before they throw it away. No question. I mean, that's that's certainly a factor here. And I think there are initiatives, really good initiatives um, uh, with companies, you know, uh, being set up to 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 pursue them. And I, I guess, again, it's a question of scaling them and making making sure that they're viable business propositions as well for people who, who have ideas in that in, in, in that area. And I know the EPA has taken a, a close interest in, in, in that as well. And, and there are more and more such initiatives coming, coming along. Um, Andrew Gilmore um, um, from the um, Institute here asked a question that uh, uh, occurred to me earlier also, and I'm sure has occurred to a lot of us when we see the post, uh, see the COVID um, impact and the impact of the pandemic and we, we, we touched we touched on it earlier in terms of buildings and uh, and and commercial versus residential and what impact the pandemic is going to have on cities generally um andrew asks a, a, a an insightful question how has the covid pandemic and the increased use of single use items impacted the trajectory of the zero waste agenda is that a worry Set, is it a possible setback? I mean, I mean, definitely, um, especially for those bring your own systems, like bring mm. your own cup, bring your own bowl, yeah. um, can no longer do that because of, of health concerns. In fact, you actually were never allowed in New York City to bring your own bowl to be filled in, 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 in that situation. I think it, it just means that we have to design systems that are sanitized and and the larger systems, whether that's um, the companies like Redish in New York City that want to deliver reusable dishware to restaurants, and then they will pick it up and do the sanitizing. So they will do a service just like you have a laundry service, or you could do it within the restaurants as, as well using their own sanitary service. But I think it just points to the fact that we have to design. I mean, there's nothing more there's no reason a disposable cup is more sanitary than a reusable one that has been washed properly. Um, so it's just a, a case of changing the systems. And sure, masks and gloves are really problematic, but we have to 
to change our procedures to make sure they are both hygienic and zero waste. Sure. Can I just come back to something we were discussing earlier on the planning, the relationship with the planning system? Um, I'm thinking about our planning system here and the regime of, of granting planning permission with conditions attached. So, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure is there's a similar system um, elsewhere, including in, 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 in New York. Have you thought, um, explored much the idea of, spe of specifying actual conditions in planning? So actual conditions that are associated with the kind of um, vision that you're, you're telling us about today, putting them into the conditions of planning. Yeah, definitely. In New York City, we have this process called the, the CEQA process. If you take city land or, or if you're building more than as a right by zoning in large plots of lands, large developments like that peninsula one I showed, you would have to go through that kind of special environmental review process. And I think that is a perfect place to put in requirements that people do better in terms of designing for zero waste. Um, yeah, I think that is, is a perfect opportunity to, to ask for more and ask for buildings to be designed for reuse rather than single use. On the bigger picture, um, so we've just come out of Glasgow and come out of that, well, it's not finished. Uh, Glasgow didn't finish anything. It just, it, it, one hopes, moved things along a bit and was disappointing in some respects and promising perhaps in others. That's a debate for another day, but ha, ha, there's an obvious link between what we're talking about today and the climate agenda. Uh, do, do, do you want to say anything ab ab about that? I, I, I mean, is this something, at least at the very minimum, it must be an area that citizens can see a real tangible set of things that they can do to make a contribution to what requires to happen. And that's not to take from the fact that all of the change that's needed has got to be at scale and it's governments that have to act and, you know, it has to happen at the level of states. But this this does take us back to what individuals can do. Uh, so is that is that an obvious link with the climate agenda? Um, definitely. I mean, I think that point you say what individuals and more community groups can do um, is a real opportunity. Um, there's these pop-up fix-it repairs that you get in New York City or these lending libraries buy nothing groups sharing. I mean, those are real tangible things that people can do that give them hope and connect them to other people in a way that recycling just doesn't do it mm -hmm. and it shouldn't because it's not it's not it's only a, a stepping stone to um to one or two more uses before a material is downcycled rather than reuse which can have thousands so i think definitely it um provides opportunities for, for communities to make a difference locally i also i kind of touched on it on one of the earlier slides about cities greenhouse gas accounting and the fact that like in New York City, waste is only 4% of our emissions as calculated because it's only the methane given off in the landfill. But if we half our food waste <laughs> by, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions system-wide are, are huge from that, but we're not counting them in our city accounting. So I think that would make it clearer to cities that we need to get to to zero waste and reduce waste. And also it would it would show the individual that what they're doing is making more of a difference to climate. And by extension, isn't there, I mean, how cities uh, approach the climate imperative, the climate agenda is affected by things like transport as well. I mean, since I, where I'm sitting in the suburb of Dublin and looking out to the front of my house and at least two, possibly three waste trucks passed uh, on the street where I live since we started at, at uh, just under an hour ago. Wow. So they're all plowing through the, the suburbs of the cities. They're big trucks. I mean, they're big. You, you don't want to, if you're a cyclist, you're not going to mess with them. I mean, they're, and there's a lot of them and they're in competition with, with one another, uh, which is another whole area uh, mm -hmm. of, of debate here. So doesn't it affect the, 
things like that as well in terms of transportation of of of, of rubbish as we call it you call it trash. yes yes it does but actually in new york city that's within the transportation um yes part of the pie so it's not if you allocated it differently consumption and waste would be a huge part of the pie it's just the way you've you've categorized it but yes i think that's a huge thing it's not just the 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 trash trucks it's the delivery trucks too and actually i've been working with a group at the aia that are looking at the real impacts of e-commerce on our streets and you know, all those deliveries to every single building and how you can consolidate them in delivery hubs. And I, I've been kind of the, the waste person there saying, it's no, since it's no longer deliveries in, waste out if in a circular city, we need to make sure that if we have a delivery hub, there's space to take back reusable packaging and things that need to be systems for repair or loaning so it's not this linear system but we're as we're developing new infrastructure for deliveries we're making sure that it can incorporate circular economy ways of of service rather than buying and throwing away look thank you so much um it, this has been really fascinating really thought-provoking actually i think for us here in dublin i say dublin because we're in dublin but we have other cities too um um addressing these issues and uh, i know doing so in a in a thoughtful and in an innovative fashion i think we're all going to be greatly assisted and policymakers and people on this call will be hugely uh, uh stimulated and assisted by the you know the experience that uh, you, you you have in New York, and by the the, the presentation that you've um, that you've given us today, um, I just spotted one other question. Just even as I was speaking, and I'm going to I'm going to hazard asking it to you without having read it first. It's also from Paul Leach. In light of your experience, pragmatically, of our political and administrative inertia, uh, Paul is assuming that it's it's the same kind of thing over there as we have here. Do you believe our societies are capable of the necessary changes in time for our species survival? Thanks very much for that. Well, Paul, it's your second question. You got in again yeah, uh, for your final, good, final word. Mm. That's a good last question. And I did actually yeah. just want to, um, I forgot to mention in the last one about you talking about your, your, your trucks competing yeah. for business and waste. That's a huge issue with the commercial waste in New York City. And we've just mm -hmm. implemented commercial waste zoning. So only two or three um, companies will be able to serve each zone to reduce the truck miles, um, which is something you might find interesting. Right. But, but um, on that last thing, I mean, I am... Um, I believe people want change and want to to do enough um, to continue <laughs> continue this planet, um, humans and nature working together. And I never, I don't really dwell on those questions. Can we do enough in time? I just think if we convince people that not only is it right for the planet, it's right for the businesses, it's right for people in terms of environmental justice and not harming people with pollution and consumption, why wouldn't we do it? Why wouldn't we try our hardest to do it? I can't think of any reason. I mean, garbage is just so disgusting, but fixing, composting, reusing, all these things make you feel good. So. I'm putting all my effort into convincing people that this is a better way to live without diesel trucks, with bikes and green streets and, and farms. And, and as architects and designers, that's what we want to do. We want to design better cities, better spaces, better buildings where people have a better, better life and the planet has a chance at a better life for all species. Well, it's the strength of the the sheer logic of, of, of what you've described and the hope that the logic will win through. Um, and I think that's that's really come across from what you've what you've been saying today and the practicality of many of the measures as well. I think that's just also important that it's, you know, it's not pie in the sky. These are achievable, practical, pragmatic solutions to uh, real human and social and community kind of you know questions and and, and and imperatives so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts um in the presentation first of all and also in your response uh to the questions that our um 
members and colleagues and attendees have uh, asked today. Thank you so much, Claire, for, for, for being with us. Thanks again to the EPA for their collaboration um, with uh, the, the, today and uh, with the series generally. Thank you for your attendance, um, our audience, and we look forward to seeing you all again before too long. Thank you and good afternoon. Thank you. That was great, great moderation. And thanks to the IEA for giving me this opportunity. A great conversation. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts.